Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and I'm joined, as always, by the man who thinks that Mott the Hoople are for big Ponzi bastards and Brian Ferry writes music for hairdressers. It's Greg. How are you today, Greg? You said that I, I wouldn't like that intro, but I mean, I fairly <laughs> believe that's sort of how I feel about both those bands. Are you? Are you on? Yeah. Do you, do you agree with that? Then okay. Well, that's interesting. I mean, we can come on to that maybe yeah. when we're doing a review later, but we can touch upon it now if you like. We've just had a before we started recording. We we spoke about the Bell and Sebastian versus Steps mm. battle. Uh, so let's wade in then on Mott the Hoople and Brian Ferry. Well, Mark the Hoople have only really one song, and it was written for them by David Bowie, all the young dudes, mm. right? And it's, yeah. it's 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 not even a good Bowie song. You can see why he gave it to them, mm. although he did record it himself. But his version of it's no better than theirs. Um, and like I think post Roxy music, Brian Ferry, it's sort of like sort of music your mum might listen to. Do you know what I mean? Like for our generation, yeah, like CD. Oh, stick stick my Brian Ferry. Like, it, it might be like. Your mum's only CD. All the other CDs in the rack are owned by your dad, but your mum's got like Brian Ferry, Rod Stewart, and Robson and Jerome, right? Oh, go, <laughs> go, go and stick my uh, Brian Ferry CD on, son. You know. So I, I, I sort of agree with it, but I like Brian Ferry when he was in Roxy Music. I like Roxy Music. What's your feeling? Yeah. What's your feeling on Mott the Hoople and Brian Ferry? Yeah, Mott the Hoople, I don't really have a massive opinion on. Mm. I would say you're right. There's only one song that I could really name. Brian Ferry, I would yes, I'd agree with you. Roxy Music were great, but yeah, Brian Ferry himself, mm. not the not the best. A, a very handsome and dashing gentleman, oh, yeah, yeah. but nah, not. Not really my taste, I would say. It's, it, it sort of went from kind of edgy art school experimental pop to this to the sort of Michael Bolton lane, I think, in, in the nineteen eighties. You know, the sort of crooner. Yeah, um, it's sold out. <laughs> I think that's kind of if if I was to think of Brian Ferry, my the kind of in, image that conjured up would be him in like in a tuxedo with a yeah, tie yeah. untied and a yeah pocket square hanging out kind of yeah sleeves crooning sleeves rolled yeah. up in his uh sleeves rolled up yeah. in his suit jacket singing jealous guy or something like that oh well that's gonna be a hit with the kids talking about <laughs> brian ferry and mott the hoople <laughs> how are you today craig what have you been up to this week uh i've been catching up on a bit of telly this summer there's been a few things come out that i've not um had the chance to watch because of my active lifestyle, I watched. Uh, I've been watching Sandman on the recommendation of our mutual friend. You won't like it. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, but it's. Um, I thought it was quite good. Uh, and I watched the first episode of the new Game of Thrones series. I was quite pleased to see that uh, Bill Patterson's in it, and also the actor whose name I've forgotten, but he plays the the gunslinger in Preacher, Scottish actor. You know who I'm talking about? He's in um, Outlander. No, no, I did. I watched Preacher as well, yeah. but I can't think. Uh, yeah, he plays the gunslinger so, in Preacher. He did voices in Mo- uh, Call of Duty. Graham McTavish. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Graham, no, Graham McTavish, yeah. Graham McTavish. He's been, he's been one of these actors that's been around for years. Um, yeah. But he is uh, the new series of uh, Game of Thrones. Well, it's not a new, it's like a prequel to the original series. Matt Smith's in it and uh, P- Paddy Considine. So, like... Four great actors, but it's still Game of Thrones. It's just, you know, I just don't get as excited about it as other people evidently do. I watched the first episode. My wife made me watch the the first episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah. She'd already watched, like, the first 
four or five mm-hmm. seasons and she said oh you have to watch this and yeah i think I, I fell asleep towards the end of the first and i was like this this is not for me yeah it's not my thing and it's funny you say that about sandman because the, the trailer came on netflix and i went oh this is out and my wife was like really you want to watch this this is not the type of thing you would watch. It's the type of thing she would watch, but not me. So yeah. uh, we haven't started it yet. So on your recommendation, I'll probably just give it a miss. I don't think, you know, you you, you might enjoy it, but it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of thing that you often pour scorn on uh, when you and I yeah. and our mutual friend are having a little catch up and he's enthusing. But I never know how much of the scorn is poured just because he's so enthusiastic about it and it's... And it's obviously quite fun to watch him get annoyed when other people don't like the things that he likes. I think it's more that I am quite happy to just say, yeah, I'm going to give that a miss. I don't like it. And he will get angry (laughs) about the fact that I wouldn't like it. So then I poke it even further. Yeah, yeah. so I'm quite happy to say, hey, I don't like it. It's not for me. But hey, other people enjoy it. That's the beauty of of having choices. And and if everyone liked the same thing, the world would be a boring place. But I I more like the fact that yeah, he gets annoyed that, yeah. that that's the case. So I I just push it a little bit too far. You might um, sometimes. I don't know. I mean, you might you might you might like uh, Sandman. It's got a good cast, uh, and Bill Patterson turns up in the first episode as well. So it's, it's a Bill Patterson double. He's obviously not worried about COVID anymore, and he's out um, getting parts in big productions. Yeah, I don't know if I'm a big fan though. I didn't like. I thought Sandman kind of ruined Spider Man Three for me. So I don't know if I want to see him in his own TV show. <laughs> Okay. Um, anything else you've been up to this week? Uh, no, no, not really. It's just uh, we we're, were away on holiday at the beginning of August, so we've just been back to work, back to normality. My children return to school tomorrow after their summer holidays, so back to the crushing routine. It's been quite nice to getting up and just having to get myself out the door for the last six or seven weeks, but having to wrangle to one teenager and one soon-to-be teenager and and a, and a wife that's not very good at getting herself organised and out the door in the morning. It's a, it's a bit of a stressful situation every day. So not, not relishing tomorrow, put it that way. Oh, lovely. Well, speaking of stressful situations, shall we have a look at what's been happening in Scotland in the last couple of weeks? <laughs> Cue the jingle. Hello, this is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Okay, Greg, well, we were discussing offline. It's been quite a a tough couple of weeks to, to find some funny or interesting news stories. There's a lot of depressing things going on in Scotland, a lot of which seems to be centered around the bin or refuse yeah. collection strikes uh, there's like rubbish piling up in scotland and people I, I read a quick article they're actually saying to people can you keep your bins inside to avoid seagulls mm. like attacking and stuff i'm like really who wants to have their stinking rubbish sitting in their house but well, i saw an article where people were being compelled to bring their um rubbish inside because the seagulls were killing the rats oh okay yeah and making make an even oh, more well. mess ah yeah. yeah, I can see that might make a little bit of mess. Okay, well, maybe keep your rubbish indoors, folks. Uh, okay, what have you seen this week then, Greg? What's your first story? You and I were having a bit of a back and forth uh, on WhatsApp about uh, it's not been a very... It's because the news is pretty grim, as you've just mentioned. But mm. I've discovered a bit of an untapped resource for news stories that it never occurred to me to 
look at. But my first story this week comes from the Scottish Daily Star. And just to give you a flavour of some of the stories you can find in the Scottish Daily Star, one of the top headlines is, pensioner who molested horse forced to do unpaid work for McDonald's sex attack. When I read into the article a bit more, his sex attack at McDonald's was, he was accused of touching a girl's bottom, which is bad enough, but not as bad as it could have been. But apparently he was caught with his hand up a horse's arse in a field in 2013. And when he was asked Hmm. why he was doing that by the horse's owner, he said it was because he was lonely. Oh. So that's just a flavour um, of the sort of stuff you can find on the uh, on the Scottish uh, Daily Star's uh, website. But um, this, my story has got nothing to do with anything like that. Uh, the headline is, Scott's mum hypnotised into kicking a 20-can-a-day iron brew habit that cost £3,000 wow. a year. Uh, this is HR manager Carol Lamond. She's been hooked on iron brew for 25 years. Her addiction spiralled out of control during lockdown. She reckons she drank around 15,000 cans over the period of lockdown. So Carol's 57, although she looks good for it, especially considering she's been drinking 20 cans of iron brew a day. It said that she first became hooked on iron brew as a young girl in Glasgow before moving to London, but she later returned to Scotland and picked up the habit again. Uh, her addiction spiralled during lockdown when she was working from home and she was soon finding herself guzzling 20 cans every day. She said, during lockdown, it just seemed to get out of control. I was cracking a can at 8am in the morning, drinking them all day and then having one before bed. Fucking hell. During the two years of lockdown, she reckons she drank around 15,000 cans of iron brew, spending £60 a week on 24 packs. Uh, Things got so bad that she was hiding the drinks from her husband, William, so he didn't find out about her dependency. Carol said, We could have bought several family holidays for the money I was spending. My my recycling bin was overflowing every week with cans of iron brew. (laughs) I would even take secret trips to the dump to dispose of the empty cans. I was like a drug addict trying to conceal my problem. I was literally chain-drinking it. I wonder if they changed the recipe during this period. Maybe not. Maybe it was before. If it was during lockdown, yeah, I think that was after, wasn't it? I think it was after, right? I think they changed the recipe in 2018, maybe, 19? Yeah, I think so. She said, I, tr- I tried to cut down and I even went cold turkey, but began suffering from crippling headaches. I was displaying all the symptoms of an addict. I was hiding cans from my husband in the garage the car and cupboards I knew he wouldn't go into. I'd drink one and replace it so it looked like I hadn't drank it. It had to be cans rather than bottles. It was everything from the sound of the can cracking open to the feel of the aluminium and the bubbles. It was bizarre when I looked back. The mum of one was hospitalised in June this year after after suffering from dizzy spells, fainting and heart palpitations. It was initially feared that she'd had a stroke and doctors even sent her for a CT scan to check for a brain tumour. She said it was the wake-up call I needed. I knew the amount of iron brew I was drinking had something to do with it. After a health scare, Carol was advised by doctors to cut down to just one can a day. So she enlisted the help of London-based therapist and hypnotist David Kilmurray. She had one hypnotherapy session and a follow-up four weeks ago. She hasn't touched iron brew since, and she says even the smell of it makes her feel sick. David said, since having her last drink three weeks ago, Carol suffered severe migraines and had two days in bed on the first day off work in four years due to the sugar withdrawal. Carol used to pour iron brew into a mug to get her sugar addiction appeased if she was in public. Sugar addiction leads to diabetes, cancers, and heart disease, and is one of the biggest causes of death in the Western world. She said, I treated Carol 
uh, with some very strong aversion therapy, which creates a disgusting taste just at the thought of drinking iron brew or chocolate. I didn't know she had a problem with chocolate as well. Uh, to conclude, her, <laughs> sort of, uh, sort of, kind of, I was about outside his remit there. She said, "I'm delighted that she has finally kicked this awful addiction." So yeah, I mean. 20 cans of iron brew a day just the thought of it gives me a bit of a headache and i like an iron brew yeah i like an iron brew but that's just insane 20 cans a day that's i mean i kind of have a maybe a can of coke zero or maybe an iron brew mm-hmm. every second day or so just kind of like as a little treat but 20 cans like that must be all you're drinking you can't be drinking any water or tea or no. coffee i mean you wouldn't want anything after that and just the amount of sugar it's just insane Especially yeah. if you've got a chocolate addiction as well. I mean, I like how the how uh, the hypnotist managed to get himself a little soundbite in there. The <laughs> yeah. Daily Star readers will be beating a path to his door for their own addictions to Lambert and Butler's and strong lager. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I like I like iron brew. I don't really drink a lot of fizzy drinks. Like, I, I have occasional iron brew, and I and I like like a really cold can of Coke out the fridge occasionally, like poured into a glass. Mm. But I'm not really a big fizzy drink person. I just can't fathom twenty a day. That's just insane. And like you, you're effectively drinking just nearly a, a slab every day. So you'd have to be going to the shop. And yeah. I can imagine she did feel a bit like an addict, especially if she's hiding it around the house and she's got little iron brew stashes <laughs> in cupboards and stuff, and <laughs> um, hiding it in her car and, and whatnot. That's a uh, yeah. That's definitely the kind of addict behaviour. So I'm glad to hear she's overcome it, but it's quite a, a come down. The doctor's recommended that she should just go down to one a day. I know, I know. I mean, maybe just go down to none a day. <laughs> I'd say just <laughs> never ever drink it again. I mean, she can't have... I mean, she's she's not like overweight or anything, you know, so she must have like not been eaten properly either or... Uh, or uh, you know, or she, I don't know. I mean, because she, maybe she's just one of these sort of lucky people that just keeps the weight off, no matter, no matter what they eat or drink. But you would expect somebody who drank twenty cans of iron brew a day to be a bit overweight. But she doesn't like she's at all. No, maybe as you say, that's what she was surviving on iron brew and curly whirlies, mm-hmm. and that was her getting her curly whirlies for the day. I don't know. It was the first <laughs> chocolate that kind of came into my head. Curly whirlies. The only thing I had a curly whirly recently, but they they sort of they kind of fuck up your teeth, like the. Chewiness gets, yeah. you know, the caramel gets in between your teeth and all that. The, the, yeah. the, the best way to have a curly whirl is to have it out the fridge and just like break bits off, like little nah. bits off. No, you need the full experience. Like no, no, you need the full experience. But I agree with you, it does stick to your teeth and it can be quite irritating mm. and not very nice. But uh, yeah, well, I'm glad she's overcoming her 20 a day iron brew habit. Shouldn't joke because obviously it's quite a serious subject. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's had a, a legitimate addiction and I'm glad that she's, she's overcome. And, um, yeah, good luck. Uh, there's another story just beside it. Apparently, the, the Scottish Fire Service have said that uh, the number of obese people being rescued from their houses in Scotland has increased dramatically over the last two years. <laughs> don't know if I don't know if they're related, but it, it feels like the the Daily Star will take the stories that even the Scottish Sun won't touch. So. <laughs> Well, we'll look forward to hearing more stories from the Daily Star in future episodes. Now you've found a good new untapped resource. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so that was my first story this week. What have you got? I've gone down a bit of a violent route this week, Greg. Uh, both my stories are kind of related to a bit of violence in Scotland because I thought we hadn't had quite a lot on the Swally recently. Then. Plus, it was just quite a bad news week, so mm-hmm. I had to get what I could get. So sure. um, this is from the Daily Record this week, and the headline reads, Scott jammed axe into pub table after rushing to defend wife 
like a man in a Hollywood movie. So this is about Christopher Tysall, 61, who is a man of unblemished character, who strode into his village pub with an axe and jammed it in the table before terrified drinkers, um, and he's been spared jail. So Christopher, who believed that his wife Shona had been insulted, flew to defend her honour. It was Christmas Eve, and the inn, the tavern 1851 in Stirlingshire, was crowded and live music was in full swing. The court heard that customers had been required to move to accommodate the music, and Mrs Tysall, who arrived earlier with her husband for a meal, tried to sit in a booth where a group of people were already sitting. One of the group, Thomas Irvin, objected to her presence, referring to COVID guidelines and protocol that were currently in force. After an argument, Mrs Tysall left the pub, went home, woke up her husband, who had gone home earlier, and told him about the row. Tysall, who trained youngsters in carpentry before working as a chef, grabbed the axe that he normally kept for chopping kindling and returned to the pub. Prosecutor Douglas Thompson said that he approached Mr Irvin, 43, with the axe in his hand and immediately began to shout and swear about the way he had spoken to his wife. He then told a shaken Mr Irvin, I'm going to chop, and then... and then struck the tabletop with the axe whilst the witness sat at the table in state. Next time, that'll be you. Uh, a number of patrons were aware of the incident and other patrons removed Mr Tysall from the pub. Police were called to the scene and he was later arrested. Um, he appeared for a sentence at Falkirk Sheriff Court, of course, and he pleaded guilty to breach the peace and having the axe as an offensive weapon in the pub on the 24th of December. His solicitor said that he only had one previous conviction almost 30 years ago for speeding. And he said he's a hard worker who has lived in this village for some time. He's not a big drinker. He'd led, until this, on Christmas Eve in the local pub, a straightforward and conventional life. He'd had that night three or four pints, though that was enough. He'd gone home, leaving his wife with friends and neighbours. He added that one witness uh, described his wife as being rebuffed by Mr Irvin in a manner that was insulting and provocative. Then added, as a result, she went home in tears. Mr Tysall lost control when she told him, and it's very out of character for him. He picked up the axe, which they used to split sticks at the back door. (laughs) went down to the pub, jammed it into the table and had words with the man. (laughs) If this was a Hollywood movie, of course that would be an act of great worth and respect for his wife (laughs) and a matter of honour. But of course it isn't. And Mr. Tysall has to face the music. Producing a series of character references, they added that Mr. Tysall was a worthwhile member of society uh, and well thought of in the community and he really regretted that he had caused fear to all of those in the bar. Uh, The judge says you took a weapon into a public place. Your judgment was already impaired by the consumption of alcohol. Nobody knew what was going to happen. No one there knew that you did not intend to use it. Events could easily have escalated. He spared Tysall jail, sentenced him to carry out 120 hours of unpaid work as a direct alternative. And he said, other than that, you're of unblemished character, hardworking, pro-social individual. With your training and skills and joinery, you'll be able to offer the community a lot via unpaid work. (laughs) Leaving court... Tysall ignored a reporter's request for comment. So his wife obviously gets annoyed that she's been probably asked to leave because I can imagine it's the height of COVID at that time. Yeah, She's in the pub. She's joined a group that she's not with and they've kind of been like, uh, you can't really be here because of COVID, you know. <clears throat> and she's gone home upset, probably a bit tipsy. It's Christmas Eve. He's just... Woken up, first thing he's thought is like, right, where's my axe? Gone to the pub. But <laughs> I want to chop. Comes in and just, I'm going to chop. 
What a line. I know. I, I, actually, his defence lawyer is fantastic the way he says, you know, if this was a Hollywood movie, he would be defending his wife's honour. Like it's like Rob Roy or something. <laughs> yeah. That he's just gone into the end to avenge his damsel being told off for his <laughs> breaching COVID guidelines. Yeah, his wife being mildly inconvenienced <laughs> by the fact that she <laughs> by the fact she couldn't get a seat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> well, he's defending her honour. Uh, so yeah, but what a line. I'm going to chop and then just slams it into the table. Next time, that will be you. That's a, <laughs> it feel, oh, if, what if, a legend. It feels like if they wanted to make like a movie about this incident, that that would be a good strap line. You know what I mean? Well, I'm going to chop. Yeah, just like... But well, how, how are you going to make this into a movie? Like, so what's the what's, what's the story like here? <laughs> His wife gets offended and he goes in with the axe yeah and that's it it's yeah. quite a short film you could, you could like have like his wife is like she's, she's not like just asked politely to move like the Burniston um, bottle of ginger sketch you know what I mean you could just turn it into something okay. more but then like the film poster would just have that great strap line I want to chop and just like a still picture of the axe and the pub table like horrified pub patrons just out of focus in the background That'd be class. Yeah, yeah, that'd be quite good. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting that. I, I'm still not seeing how you're going to extend it fully unless you go into the backstory of their home life. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I've, see him I've got, I've, I've, kids I don't have any ideas. I just want to see that film poster. That's all. Well, that's oh, okay. <laughs> like, you just want to see yeah. an axe in a pub table with horrified patrons behind. On maybe a, just a pint of yeah. tenants in the. Sort of the side. Half drunk paint a tartan special. Yeah. Maybe the maybe the, the paint a tartan special is actually falling on its side and we just have the tartan special pouring off the table beside the axe. Like the fo- oh, the fo- be nice, force yeah. of the axe has made the paint fall. Um Yeah. You know. And it kind of looks a bit like blood because it's, you know, yeah, it's dark, dark and tartan special. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, foamy as well. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that, that could be good, actually. It'd be an interesting poster. I don't know about a film, you know, maybe yeah. a short, a shouldn't 30 film. minute kind of if, episode yeah. yeah student film um i liked what the judge said uh you know you're about you kind of making a bad decision because your judgment was impaired by alcohol can you think mm. can you think of any bad decisions that you've made on the spur of the moment after you've had a few pints that you've thought many <laughs> i mean I, you know you you, you, you told you've, you've told one on the podcast before about uh kicking the football over into Pataudry. Oh, that wasn't a bad decision. That was a great decision. <laughs> that was a brilliant night. Yeah. Um, try to get into to play on the pitch. But yes, looking back in hindsight, yes, probably a bad decision. Yeah, I'm sure I've made plenty of things that if I if I look back and think, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that when I've I've maybe had a few beers. But, but well, the funny it's thing all about part it is parcel. The, the the funny thing is like making a bad decision because you've had too much to drink. Like obviously depending on what it is, but like, the severity of it, regard you know, will we'll sort of inform. But like, then the next day you kind of think, oh fucking hell, I wish I hadn't done that. But have you noticed that yeah. with the passing of time, you're sort of glad you did because it's. <laughs> It's a good story. You know, it's something, well, something to talk about, isn't it? You know, as long as no one's I got mean, hurt and you've not, like, hurt yourself or whatever. One that immediately springs to mind is one night we had, um, I'd been out with a few friends, one of whom you would know, and, and it was a couple of his other friends, and we'd been at Amadeus. We got the Amadeus bus back up to Union Street, and they lived just off of King Street, I think. Um, and we were walking past, there used to be an odd bins at the end of Union Street. Mm. And they had a big chalkboard outside, like advertising all the, the booze. And I guess this should have been taken in at night, but they'd left it outside. Yeah. And 
I remember us passing it and going, that'd look fucking great in your flat. So the it was it was massive and heavy. So the four of us picked it up and started walking up King Street towards the flat. All of a sudden, blue lights behind us <laughs> pulled over by the cops. Where are you going with this, boys? <laughs> like, eh, we're just moving it. And so yeah, took our uh, put it back. So they followed us and we had to go and put it back and th- that was it. So right. yeah, I mean, regret that. Didn't like getting yeah. in- into trouble as such. Nothing happened. They didn't like even take our names and addresses or anything. But, you know, it, it was still like a, oh yeah, we shouldn't have done that. But again, it's a story to tell. You didn't like having to walk back up King Street to put the thing back. <laughs> well, yeah, it was bloody heavy and we're nearly back at the flat. Yeah. So it was like, oh, really? You've got to go all the way back? Mm-hmm. So yeah, to go all the way back, dump it and then, yeah. So that wasn't fun. They are heavy. I mean, remember when I used to work for Frankie and Benny's, we had them, you had to like sort of lug it out every morning and obviously, and mm. then take it in again at night. And they're, they're fucking really heavy, those uh, those old A-frame chalkboards. I wouldn't fancy carrying one down Union Street, I'll tell you that. Yeah, or King no, Street. Right? it wasn't fun. Or, or any street. So, um, But why? Have you got anything that springs to mind of any drunken decisions or um, regrets? Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't know that I would. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've maybe painted myself in a bit of a corner. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's any that I'd, I'd want to share. I was thinking that. Um, I mean, like, if I, I mean, I've told the story before about getting in the delivery cage on Harriet Street in Aberdeen and getting pushed over yeah. and falling and hurting my knee. That was one that I regretted until my knee got better. Um, I remember dropping somebody you know out of his window on Belmont Street, a mutual friend of ours used to live in Belmont Street above, mm. uh, I think it was above One Up or in that sort of zone. And he was, mm-hmm. we were in his flat and we were boozing. We'd been out. And we're, so we'd go back to his because everywhere was shut. And we were boozing and we were smoking some weed. And he used to like doing bridge swinging. He would be, despite the fact that he was a bit of a kind of boozer and a bit of a, bit of a, a, bit of a party boy back then. He's not anymore. He's, he's, he's very settled down now. But um, So he had all this rope apparatus which he used for bridge swinging and for rock climbing and stuff. So he decided to abseil out of his window on Belmont Street. But we were, me and another mutual friend were holding the rope. And when he was about 10 feet from the ground, just let him go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he, uh, yeah, he hurt his legs and stuff. He wasn't like, I mean, he was, he he didn't go to hospital or anything, but he was a bit, he was a bit bruised. But the the, the reason that, the reason we let him go was because like years before he had uh, cheated, he had, the other guy that dropped him, he had, um, he had slept with his girlfriend, like, like the the day before they broke up or something. So, I, you know, he he hadn't done anything to me, other only that I found them occasionally annoying, <laughs> but otherwise it was all right. But uh, yeah, that, that yeah, that's that was a bad that 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 was a bad a bad call. That could be the second act of I'm going to chop. That yeah. sounds like a, I'm a going great to drop. Sorry, what of the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's got to be the sequel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mr. Irvin ends up sleeping with uh, with our uh, Christopher Tysel's wife. Yeah. And then he's abseiling out a window <laughs> in the sequel and he drops him. Um, mm. I, I never realised, I'm aware of the story that you've told there yeah. about um, the friend that lived on Belmont Street. And I, I remember that happening, but I wasn't aware that you guys let him go on purpose. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a, it was like, I don't know, what, 25 years ago? And, you know, it was fine. It was, I think we both immediately immediately regretted it, or at least I did. I can't speak for our mutual acquaintance and went down and helped him and helped him gather up his ropes and bits and bobs, clasps and things. And Was it was it Techno Jock? Yeah, it was. It, techno Jock yeah, was, yeah. was, it was, he was the one that instigated the, we should just let him go. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Um, okay. Well, I'll look forward to seeing. I'm going to chop and I'm going to drop <laughs> hitting our screens yeah. sometime soon. <laughs> Maybe make a little yeah. radio play out of it first and see if it gets picked up on any commissions. Coming soon to uh, YouTube. Okay. Coming soon to YouTube. Yeah. We can make a little animation out of Lego or something. Um, okay. Um, what else have you seen this week, Greg? Um, well, the, so from one shameful. Uh, act to one act of bravery. Um, okay, so the head. This comes from the Daily Record um, on the twenty third of August. So it's a it's about a week old. Hero police dog breaks up bladed weapon fight between two men on a Scotch street. Uh, the officers were responding to an incident on Mason Street in Motherwell on Sunday, August the fourteenth, when Obi, that's the dog's name, uh, came to the rescue. Uh, so Obi is a he's a Belgian Malinois. So it looks a bit like an Alsatian. Hmm. You'll never believe what his handler's name is, though. <laughs> his handler's name is PC Mutter. M-U-T-T-E-R. <laughs> well, you couldn't make it up. It's like a, a sort of children's BBC animation about a policeman <laughs> and his hero dog, PC Mutter Aww. and Obi. Um, they just come off a call when they received a report of two men fighting with belated weapons uh, immediately. I'm just thinking of Highlander here, but I'm sure it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was the Kurgan. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sadly. The Kurgan and McLeod on Mason Street in Edinburgh. The police <laughs> officer who was the first on the scene shouted out a warning, but the men allegedly continued to fight despite them both being injured. Obi then sparked into action as one of the men <laughs> immediately gave up and lay on the ground. Uh, the other man, quickly realising that police dog Obi would be hot in his heels before long, also lay on the ground. The pooch then stood guard while his handler took the men into custody. Uh, two men aged 26 and 32 have been charged with serious assault when officers have praised Obi for his involvement in the arrests. A police, Scotsman spokes, a police Scotland spokesperson said Obi stopped them from further injuring each other and possibly hurting anyone who intervened. Uh, two men, aged 26 and 32, arrested and charged with serious assault. Chalk up another success for police dog Obi and his handler, PC Mutter. So, PC Mutter. Uh, I'm like you. I like dogs. Uh, we always had dogs when I was growing up. It's, and, you know, and I'll, I'll always responsibly uh, say hello to any dogs that we pass by when we're out and about. Um, but I've got to tell you, the thought of a police dog chasing after me yeah. is nightmarish because in my yeah. mind, they're always going to go for the bollocks, right? Because bo- mm. the bollocks are the, the, the kind of perfect, the sort of dog face height on most, pe- most people, right? So they're either going to go for the bollocks or they're going to go for the throat. Um, in my mm. mind, I know that they're trained to go for like the forearm, aren't they? Or the shin. The arm. Yeah. Yeah. Or the shin. Yeah. But just, I mean, fucking hell. I mean, being like run down by any fierce animal is fucking mm. a scary thought. 
You know, like my daughter asked me the other day, she, she, she asked me what I would do if a bear came at me. You know, would I run or would I like freeze? Would I put up a fight? And I was I was thinking, I don't. I think it'd be pointless to do it, either of those three things because I'm pretty sure that I couldn't outrun a bear because they, I've seen bears run, they can run fast. I'm not going to put up a fight because it probably outweighs me by about fucking... Mm. 500 pounds and I'm not going to lie down because then it's just going to fucking <laughs> I've seen the revenant yeah. it's just going to fucking attach itself to me and pull bits off me but yeah I like um, but I do like watching police dogs being trained when you see them on TV and stuff and the guys have got the big paddy darn thing on he's a, a proper hero though like yeah. the the littlest hobo yeah or um, littlest Obi Jerry Jerry Lee from K9 and Hooch, Hooch. From Turner and Hooch have you have you watched Turner and Hooch recently? Uh, no, I can't bring myself to because I, I did enjoy Turner and Hooch, but I don't enjoy the ending of Turner and Hooch, well, this is it. and it's just not. Whereas the ending of K Nine is mm. is much funnier. Yeah, you know he thinks Jerry Lee's dead, but then his eye opens and he's not. Yeah. Oh, hilarity ensues. <laughs> Fucking Hooch dies at the end of Turner and Hooch. That's not a family film. Now I remember those films being out round about the same time. It was a bit of a, they sort, did, a, yeah, a they... sort of dog body. Sort of, sort of film war. I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't seen Turner and Hooch maybe since it came out, right? And we watched it a couple of years ago, and I had completely forgotten that Hooch died at the end of Turner and Hooch. And I just, yeah. and the thing is, like, there's a lot of like high comedy in Turner and Hooch. You know, like when he's trying to give, oh. he's trying to give Hooch a bath out in the garden, like Tom Hanks and he's like briefs with a hose, like trying to give Hooch a bath and Hooch chewing up his house and Tom Hanks is all, you know, Turner's like. He's really meticulous. He likes everything. He's, he lives by himself. Mm. Um, I just wasn't emotionally prepared for the end of it. No. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I no. don't remember this happening. It's horrible. <laughs> no. And then it's like, oh, it's all okay in the end, though, because they replace him with new yes. puppies. So it's fine. It's okay. He lives on. It's, no, it's horrible. It's not okay. It's not. It's. <laughs> it would have been. It would be more honest just to end the film with a kind of tearful goodbye to Hooch rather than this sort of compensatory fucking new dogs scene at the end. Yeah. Um. I think one of the best dog attack scenes of recent years, though, has to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. With, uh, with Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt's dog. Yeah. Yeah. Just fucking. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. A bit, a bit like today's film. That was a film that was better the second time I watched it, I think. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, Hero Dog, uh, Obi and PC Mutter. Um, how, may, how much do you want to bet that PC Mutter's colleagues call him PC Mutley? Oh, yeah. Hugely. Yeah. <laughs> Has to be. With a name like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what else are you going to go into apart from, you know, being a dog handler if you've got a name like that? PC Mutter. I know. Either that, yeah, is that one? Uh, okay. What's your, what's your second story this week? So my second violent story that I have this week, I'm sorry about that, but hey, I, I find this quite amusing, um, is from the Press and Journal in Aberdeen this week. And it's about an anti-masker. I mean, you don't hear much about those anymore, do you? Because, of course, you don't really have to wear masks now. No. Um, threatened to murder supermarket staff after being kicked out of the store. So this is a man who threw food at supermarket staff and called them social racists because he wanted uh, because they wanted him to wear a mask and he's appeared in court. Um, not long after the Sainsbury's confrontation, Raymond Sanders rang 999 and told call handlers he was going to commit murder at the store. Uh, Aberdeen Sheriff Court was told that Sanders fully accepts he behaved awfully. 
The 49-year-old entered the Holborn Street Sainsbury's at around 11am on February the 16th last year. This was during the second lockdown, and repeatedly refused to comply with face mask regulations. Instead, he flung bread rolls at the staff and abused them before being ejected from the store. Half an hour later, he returned to the shop, banging on the windows with his fists and shouting. He proceeded to walk in towards the same staff members and act in an aggressive manner, puffing out his chest. He called them social racists and stated Sainsbury's are racist, before police were contacted and then he left. Uh, 45 minutes later, he called 999 to tell police he was going to commit murder at Sainsbury's on Holborn Street. Uh, He had slurred speech, the fiscal added. And when asked why he was going to commit a murder, he replied to the operator, because I am a Muppet. Uh, <laughs> officers, <laughs> officers rushed to his Aberdeen home and found him intoxicated in the hallway and laughing because they were wearing full PPE. Uh, he stated, I can't take you seriously. Um, in response to them wearing full PPE masks, goggles and gloves, um, he made comments relating to them and comparing them to terrorists. Uh, he then took his mobile phone out and started videoing officers. When asked to refrain, he repeated, shut the fuck up, fuck off. Who are you coming to my house, you fucking space aliens? Uh, the court heard how Sanders then resisted arrest, repeatedly kicked one officer, called each other Muppets and Gingers, before threatening and telling them they would regret everything that is going on right now. Um, he admitted to a charge of threatening and abusive behaviour, uh, another of making an offensive and threatening call, and two charges of police assault. Uh, his defence agent said that the client had been self-medicating with alcohol at the time and fully accepts that he has behaved awfully. The, uh, the judge said there was just simply no excuse for his behaviour. So yeah, he has been handed a supervision order for one year and 188 hours of community service. Now, I know it's not a funny story as such, but I find it quite amusing. I think the fact that he was throwing bread rolls at the staff, um, that when he called them up, he said, because I am a Muppet. Um, and I, I did find it funny when the, the police arrived and he said get out of my house you fucking space aliens yeah just because they were wearing protective equipment <laughs> um now that Sainsbury's in Holborn Street is where you and I purchased a box of tenants lager when we were staying at the Airbnb just off Holborn Street a few years ago yes when we it were is in town. indeed yes that's the one I often I mean it's, I often feel a bit sorry for people who work in like city centre like mm. sort of Tesco metros and stuff because I mean this must be like a fairly regular sort of thing to happen. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, just as a customer, you go in and you, there's always somebody in there. Like the, the worst one is the Glasgow, is the one in Glasgow on um, Queen Street, down near the bottom of Queen Street, the Sainsbury's there. When I was staying in the city oh, centre yeah. a few years ago, uh, well, a few years ago, like 10 years ago, um, I, you know, I'd go down there to get bits and bobs and it was just there would always be at least one lunatic in there and you're like oh i just want Mm. to get my messages and get the fuck out of here before he starts talking to me or before he has a has a fucking piss in the fruit and veg or something like that do you know what i mean and it's just horrendous but so did i hear you right did this guy call the police on himself yes yeah right. so um the, the staff at the store had called the police when right. he was throwing bread rolls at them sure and then he'd left the store and then about half an hour later no 45 minutes later he'd he'd got home and he called the police to tell them um i'm going to commit a murder at sainsbury's holborn street the person on the end of the phone had said 
why are you going to murder these people? And he said, because I am a Muppet. <laughs> and then he obviously given them his full address. So the police turned up yeah, yeah. and found him p- pissed in the hallway, um, <laughs> shouting at them. For goodness sake. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I suppose maybe, I suppose the fact that he's sort of stuck himself in and clearly but then I'm saying that but then when the police do turn up instead of going yeah look, you know I've been a fool you know I'll come quietly he does like the opposite <laughs> of coming quietly yeah and I just never go if they ab- abusing the police never works out well for anybody no I mean I don't know what's worse he did tell them to shut the fuck up fuck off but then he started calling them Muppets and Gingers right um, which <laughs> It's, um, it's, it's not the best thing to do. No, I, mean, I don't know how we, how we would know what colour their hair was if they had PPE on. Because in my mind, they would have had masks and maybe like the sort of Breaking Bad hazmat suit on over there. If they're going, if they're going at someone's house, they might have. Been, I, don't, I don't know what the yeah. what the procedure was during the during the, the height of COVID for the police, but. You know, if they're going at someone's house, I imagine they probably took all precautions. Um, yeah, it's just like like just thinking of abusive things to call them, and gingers just it's, comes yeah, to mind. You know, just thinking about gingers, it's better than a homophobic slur. Well, that's or, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like that. I just called them gingers, which is still not acceptable. Yeah. I will say, but um, Muppets is okay. I think I don't think there's anything no against Muppets at, at the moment. So. Is there? That's that's not a. Something you're not allowed to call people. I don't think, I don't think the Muppets have been investigated for any early 1980s uh, <laughs> studio audience shenanigans. I think uh, their reputation is exemplary. Okay, well, hopefully we'll have something a bit more uh, upbeat for the next episode. But, uh, anyway, yeah, that was the news from Scotland in the last couple of weeks. Okay, well, before we're going to be going on to talk about what we're going to be talking about today, let's have a little word from our sponsors. If you're looking for the best used car money can buy, come to Belmont. We've well over a thousand superb cars on display every day from below 2,000 to 20,000 pounds. Every make and model and each backed up by our own no argument guarantee and our unique 70 options to change. And because Belmont is Scotland's used car main dealer, you'll find our trade-in prices hard to beat. It's no wonder so many people have the Belmont sticker on their car. It's a sign of the professionals and the best deal in Scotland. Call in and see for yourself. There's a branch near you. Okay, so it was your choice this week uh, for the podcast, Nikki. Why don't you introduce uh, this week's movie? Thank you very much, Greg. Yes, well, as I said on last week's episode, well, last episode, um, I thought we'd been having a bit too much fun on the Swally recently with uh, the content that we've been looking at. So I thought it was time to bring us down a little bit and do something a little bit more gritty and depressing. So uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the 2003 drama written and and directed by Richard Jobson, who featured in our last episode doing creation stories. So the film is 16 Years of Alcohol, based on Jobson's semi-autobiographical novel of the same name from 1987. It stars Kevin McKidd as Frankie, a violent skinhead with a love for alcohol and ska music. It follows Frankie through his childhood and into adulthood as he fights with his demons. Also starring Laura Fraser, uh, Susan Lynch, uh, Stuart Sinclair Smith, uh, Lewis MacLeod and Ewan Bremner. Greg, you mentioned last week that you had seen this one before. Did you? So no, I hadn't seen it. Members, oh, you you hadn't seen it no, before. No, this is the first time. Okay, I wasn't sure if you thought you'd seen it once before, but I I'd, I'd, I'd seen it once before. Maybe right. that was what I was confusing. So, well, your your first time viewing it, what did you think overall? Um, the first time I watched it, 
I got to be honest, I didn't like it the first time I watched it. Yeah. Um, the second time, I sort of enjoyed it more. Um, cause, and mm-hmm. I, I looked at the notes that I had made during my first viewing. And, you know, I had to, I sort of, I had to kind of revise a few, like quite a lot of them actually after watching it the second time. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's shot. Most of the film is, I felt was shot like a music video, especially mm-hmm. the, the the beginning and like certain mm-hmm. sequences. And because because it goes from um, that sort of thing, like a music video, to like a more of a sort of regular sort of narrative film, and then back again, it can be quite jarring. I mean, it feels like a real sort of kind of late night. I know it's not late nineties, but it feels like a real late nineties independent mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think you know if you think about some of the other directors who have who have got and not not the job. I don't know that I had. I don't think Jobson directed any music videos. Or I, I could be wrong. I didn't see any of that when I was looking into him. But if you look mm. at like directors who have started off in music videos, like uh, Russell McCauley who directed Highlander, or even like um, what's his name, uh, the guy who does who did like the trans Michael Bay. You know, he started off in mm. music videos and commercials, and they, a lot of that is in. Sure. Is a lot of that's in the is in their sort of filmmaking style. Yeah, and it, you know it's it's kind of jarring. But then when I did more research into Richard Jobson and found out more about him, it kind of it sort of makes more sense. You know, they when mm. they, he apparently was uh, and and there's he's you know he he writes poetry and he's also like a fan of like war poetry like the first world war and stuff so when you hear the sort of earnest uh voiceover from kevin the kids when he's talking about hope and all that sort of stuff you know you can, I, I think when you when you sort of uh when i when i, when I started to understand more about richard jobson i sort of uh enjoyed the film a bit more you know like that second time like the, the first time i felt it was pretentious a bit slow apart from mckid lewis mcleod who plays his dad and um, Laura Fraser. The rest of the performances in the film are they're really not very good. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah. Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner rather is in it for like five minutes, if that. Yeah. And he's fine. You know, he just doesn't have much to do really. But uh, it's it's definitely. I'm gl- I'm glad that you picked it. It's definitely an interesting film. I mean, so you mm. me- you mentioned that you had watched it before. You got. I think you said in the last episode yeah. that it came out when you were working for Blockbuster. In Aberdeen. So, how did you feel coming back to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had kind of vague memories of, of the first time I watched it. I think I'd, I'd probably rented it because it was at the time it was Scottish mm. and Kevin McKidd was in it, and probably the main reason I'd rented it was because Laura Fraser was in it. Because I've, I think, ever since seeing her in Small Faces, I've had a little <laughs> bit of a thing for Laura Fraser, right. and I, I remember kind of enjoying it at the time, but I hadn't really remembered a huge amount about it so coming back to it was was very interesting i i enjoyed it watching it again it's it's definitely not without its flaws yeah and there's there's quite a few things that i would i would pick up i think it's it's quite an interesting film because it was robson's robson and jerome it's because you mentioned <laughs> robson and jerome earlier i know it's um it richard jobson's um directorial debut so i think a lot of the the decisions he's made are quite brave in mm-hmm. terms of, of some of the, the shots that he has, some of the way things are shot. Like you say, it's kind of a music video. Yeah. And I've seen a bit of criticism online in terms of people saying it's old cliches and stuff. So, for example, the beginning of the film is effectively the ending. Yeah. And 
you have the the kind of flashback in a way and that's what i think i viewed it as mm-hmm. the it is a, a flashback in terms of it it's a guy's i mean it's frankie's life flashing before his eyes effectively yeah is the the whole story of the film and that's when it joins at the end again and i i think some of the he makes some brave choices in terms of the voiceover as well that yeah. can be I, I did find that could be quite distracting at times as yeah, well yeah. and a little bit i know some of it is quite poetic but some of it i was like a bit oh come on you're kind of going on a bit now mm-hmm. give it a rest i thought it was very good at the beginning when he's speaking about hope but then at, at other points in the film thinking yeah i could do without this voiceover um some of the shots are fantastic they i mean <laughs> We'll speak about the is it homage or just a blatant ripoff of a clockwork orange that he's got going on there yeah. it's again it's very well shot though and and i thought it was quite interesting as you say the performances a lot of them aren't great exactly as you say apart from mckid fraser and mcleod i think mm. the rest could kind of ropey. could kind of leave there i think yeah. um yeah i enjoyed it but as I say, it's it's definitely not without its flaws. I enjoyed the music and the soundtrack. There were certain parts of it that I, I thought were very well shot and it had me interested. But again, I'd say my favourite part of it was the parts Laura Freezer was in. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, so in terms of the film, though, I mean, it's about 16 years of alcohol. And it, I think it, it heavily relies, not relies, but it, it's heavily focusing on his, his alcoholic behaviour and stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't see much of that, though. Really? You didn't see a lot of boozing. It's, no, I've got that in my notes. There's not. At the beginning, when you see him as a wee boy, and, you know, like his, his parents and his community seem... It's a sort of traditional Scottish working class. A lot of socialising revolves around the pubs. You know, you've got that... The, when we're introduced to his dad at the beginning, he's, he's sort of putting his friend on the doorstep because he's hammered yeah and so so they i i i sort of thought right so we're going to see you know we, we see the scene when frankie has his first drink so we're going to see mm. like this sort of decline into alcoholism and antisocial behavior as a result but you just see the antisocial behavior to your point you don't really see yeah. him getting smashed and all that well that's it and perfectly as you said you're thinking when you see his dad putting the drunk guy up okay and then they go off to the pub as mm-hmm. a family and you think okay is his dad going to be an alcoholic and and get hammered i mean okay later on when he bumps into his dad his dad is pissed and he's a vagrant obviously that was his descent into to alcoholism but at that time his dad was just a shagger yeah he wasn't uh you know he's in the pub holding court singing songs laughing telling stories obviously shagging the the joanne rossi as well yeah whilst whilst his wife's in the bar and his son mm-hmm. um he's not like a a massive booze hound really so i i kind of don't understand and exactly as you say we see him take his first drink at a young boy now what what do you think he's meant to be there about 10 11 i thought he was supposed to be a bit older like about maybe 12 or 13 something like that but then doing the whole cowboy thing with his dad make mm. it sort of makes it kind of makes him younger doesn't it i mean i i can't imagine yeah. having a sort of doing that sort of thing with my dad when i was because I, I was at high school by the time i was 11 because i was at high school in england and you know so you just would do that so maybe you're right maybe he's Maybe he's supposed to be maybe 10, 9 or 10 or something. Because I'm trying to work out how much time passes because the time frame and timeline of this film is kind of all over the place. So yeah. try to work out how much time has passed before he meets 
Helen, Laura Fraser's character. Mm-hmm. I, how how old is he supposed to be at this point? Because I, yeah. he looks about thirty, but <laughs> obviously, you know, later on when he's with Mary, how old is he meant to be then? It, it's sixteen years of alcohol. Is this film take place over sixteen years? So if that's the case, is he twenty six at the end? Well, so yeah, that's what is I, he that's early twenties? I, I kind of thought that yeah, because I mean, McKid was thirty when he made this film. So he was born in nineteen seventy three. Yeah. Um, I sort of thought that the kind of the kind of sixteen years were maybe ten to late twenties, as you say. Okay, you know what I mean? Because when he's got his his droogs, <laughs> his like skinhead pals, uh, and he's sort of charging about with them, you would like to think that you know if he's supposed to be thirty, and you know that this guy this guy Miller has still got it in for him for something that he did when he was to him when he was like twenty. You know, yeah. you think well, you know that's maybe stretching it a bit because you know. People just move on, don't they? But um, but mm. then maybe not that much time has passed. Maybe it's only the space of a few years from him uh, sort of stopping cutting about with the with his gat with his mates and focusing on Helen and just sort of generally trying to get his life in on some kind of track, you know. As you say, as you said, there's there's not a lot of boozing. So when we we see him with his drugs and. Again, there's not a lot of boozing going on. No. There's there's one scene where they have like a couple of bottles of beer. He does have a hip flask at one point yeah. when he comes to meet them, but then they even go to the club and you don't see them drinking. Mm-hmm. And when he leaves the club to go and harass Helen, yeah. effectively, he's not drunk. Mm-hmm. So, and then the next time they do that, that, that's one thing I did like when you you see the kind of stills of the, obviously to show the basis of the relationship with Helen and the kind of, you can see the little passing of time maybe. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, they're up on the um, Carlton Hill at the National Man- Monument of Scotland and he's declaring that that's it, I'm going to be free from alcohol. And you're like, wait, yeah. I mean, I've seen you have like two drinks this whole film. So yeah. I don't understand the the big thing. And then the next Obviously, when Helen dumps him and then he goes and gets pissed, that's the only time you see him really hammered. And he sobers up pretty quickly when Miller comes up to him on the street. Mm -hmm. But it should be more 16 years of violence or 16 years of antisocial behaviour than 16 years of alcohol, really. Well, I wonder if maybe... Because I try to find stuff about the production... And I find this quite, it's quite common, like, if we review something, you know, like, if you, if we reviewed Highlander, there was, like, tons of stuff about the production that you could find out, you know, when we reviewed Braveheart, mm. it was the same, but, like, there's sort of smaller movies that don't, aren't as circulated, and, do, uh, sorry, aren't as uh, distributed as widely as those Hollywood ones, it can be difficult to find stuff about production and things and i did look for i had a look on youtube to see if there was any videos like with like kevin mckid talking about making this film or richard jobson talking about making the film and there wasn't but i wonder if because jobson is uh was like a first-time director i wonder if maybe he hasn't had the final cut of the film you know what i mean because Mm. it's pretty although it can be a bit slow in parts it's a pretty tidy sort of 90 minutes you know kind of runtime and I wonder if maybe there were, yeah. there's maybe some more scenes that have been taken out that maybe show him in the pub and being drunk and the sort of consequences of him like, being pissed uh, that we that were cut out the final film that we you know that might have made it make a bit more sense. Possibly, I mean, as I say, there's just not much, and and it's more. I can see he's traumatized by his father's behavior, but it's not the alcohol abuse; it's the philandering. Yeah. Really, because yeah. that's what kind of drives him over the edge at the end of the film because he's having flashbacks and thinks that Mary is up to no good but mm-hmm. it's it's not the booze 
So, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit lost on that. And like I say, the when he has this massive declaration that that's it, there'll be no more alcohol, and he gives it up. Yeah. And and then when he falls off the wagon, and Miller's saying to him, "Oh, you're she's going to be so upset when she sees you," or you know, I'm going to yeah. go round and tell her that you've fallen off the wagon. I'm like, well. Didn't think he was that bad before, but yeah. hey, who knows? You're right. Maybe there are been uh, there have been some scenes cut out cuts. or things that should have been in. I just feel that like even the scenes of his recovery, well, not so much his recovery, but the scenes of him, you know, kind of filling his time and things when he stopped supposedly drinking uh, and he's joined the AA group. You know, so we see him coaching the the sort of Celtic boys, mm. and I don't understand why that kid got a red card without even a yellow card, by the way, from the referee for arguing. But um, you know, we see him doing that. We see him doing the theatre group as well. Mm. Uh, and the, the only time we 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 know he's got a job because earlier on, before he starts going out with Helen, we see him working at a brewery. So he's sitting out yep. in the barrels when there's that quite nice little scene with him and the in the in the brewery girls and they're teasing them yeah so i mean but the, I mean, the, there's a whole i guess there's loads of little indicators throughout the film like sort of subtle and and not so subtle about how his life is kind of is sort of defined by alcohol you know obviously there's a scenes mm. it'd be very unusual for a boy of his age to be allowed into a pub i would have thought back in the I guess it's supposed to be the 70s, or the early 70s, maybe. Um, That's what I thought, yeah. When there's a scene when there's a woman singing in the pub and she's singing One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus, uh, which I think is sort of Alcoholic Anonymous, is, they've sort of adopted that as their kind of the sort of song of their cause. Um, mm. You know, we see him working in the brewery, we see him going to the pub with, the, with his skinhead pals um, in the scene when uh, he beats up the bartender so maybe it's sort of less about alcoholism and more about just lives that are defined by by alcohol and i think there's i think there's a th- mm. i don't think they're necessarily the same thing i mean I, I i'm not an alcoholic but as soon as i was old enough or as soon as i looked the part i've gone to the pub because that was it was part of the community do you know what i mean it was you know you would you know when you're a kid and you're too young to get into the pub you just want to get in you know it's like well, what's going on in there you know it's packed it sounds like i was having a good time you know and then as you do and you get older and you go and then i think for most people they sort of get to a certain age where you know they, they get married or whatever and they stop going to the pub regularly they might just go occasionally with like their wives or friends and things but then for other people i suppose and i think it's maybe a generational thing the pub is their life and i think in these working yeah. these sort of traditional working class communities you know when guys have worked like in the shipyards or they've been fishermen or any of these sort of tough industries that scotland used to sort of thrive on back uh, in the 20th century you know like at the end of the week i can imagine when you've just done like a hard week of like on a shipping boat or in a shipyard um and you're you know, they probably look forward to the pub, you know, like in the pub Friday, in the pub Saturday, in the pub Sunday, pubs used to shut early on a Sunday, and then up the road, and then the week starts again. But it's the same all the time, with only two weeks holiday a year. They, they, they trades Fortnite in Aberdeen or Glasgow Fair in Glasgow, I'm not sure what they would call it in other industrial cities. And then that's what they do until they... And they, but then these guys would probably die when they were in their 60s, you know what I mean? Mm. Which is quite young by... yeah. 21st century measures so maybe that's what Jobson's trying to depict in the film as opposed to leaning into the alcoholism you know uh, you could be right I think it is I mean, it's ingrained in British culture I yeah. would say in, in terms of if you look at the three of the most popular TV shows probably in the UK certainly back in maybe the late 90s or 2000s you know 
EastEnders, Coronation Street yeah. and Emmerdale. Yeah. They're all centered around the pub. Yeah. And that's where, and, and okay, I know it's maybe just a, a way of getting characters in the same place, but mm-hmm. it's a pub at the end of the day. I mean, even when I think River City launched, that was the, they had a pub, didn't they? The ship in or something uh, like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's very much a kind of place and that's what they've shown here in terms of that's where people go to to congregate and um i guess it's just a way to to show that yeah yeah, you're right it's that could be the way and i did think it was a nice touch that he goes back to the pub that he'd visited as a child in the beginning or the end of the film Mm -hmm. the way you're looking upon it and that's where he he wants he kind of gravitates to yeah yeah for sure and i think Kevin McKidd is, is he, he's all in, I think, in this film. You know, I think this mm. is maybe his first, I think it's probably his first lead uh, role looking at his uh, IMDb. I mean, he's, he sort of shares it with Sean Pertwee and Dog Soldiers, and he's kind of the hero of the mm. film at the end. Um, as we've discussed, you know, Trainspot, and he's part of an ensemble. Small Face, he's mm. part of an ensemble. Acid House, I guess he's the lead in that little segment of it that he's in. Mm-hmm. There's a film that I'd forgotten about that he was in in 1998, which I've, I'm sure I've seen it once. I remember quite enjoying it, called Dad Savage. I think Patrick Stewart's in it, Joe McFadden's in it. It's not a Scottish film, though, I don't think. It's an English film. But, mm-hmm. um, and then he does Looking After Jojo in 1998, which is an ensemble again. Robert, that's Robert Carlyle's show, really. Um, he plays Basil in Looking After Jojo, which we'll have to do in the Swally at some point. Mm, yeah. I think one of our favourite Kevin McKidd performances is his voice work as the singer in, of Love Fist in Grand Theft Auto Vice City. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, 2002, we mentioned he does Dog Soldiers. He does this in 2003. Then he does a couple, he sort of seems to lean into these kind of historical dramas. He does uh, Gunpowder, Treason and Plot for the BBC. He does The Virgin Queen. Then he does Rome, which was a big thing because that was a joint venture, a joint Mm. production between BBC and HBO. And that sort of starts the beginning of this really quite successful American television career. He did did this. He did did Journeyman, which I remember watching like the first one of. And I I was reading about that. Apparently it was well received until about halfway through and then the audience just seemed to dry up for whatever reason. But then I guess it's, it's a big thing. And I think the thing that he's certainly most known for in the US is uh, it's part of the cast of Grey's Anatomy. Um, mm. And, you know, it does many a, he sets many a heart aflutter um, with the Grey's Anatomy fans, uh, I believe. But yeah, I think his, his career has been really interesting, I think, when you look at everything he's done. Yeah. You know, like, Hugh McGregor is by far the biggest, has had the most success since train spotting by a country mile. Mm hmm. Um, but I, th- I would say bet- between him and Robert Carlyle, they're probably level pegging. And, and McKinn mm. might even have a bit of an edge on Carlyle because Carlyle's never had that kind of big American success like McKid has with Grey's Anatomy. I think he did this, he's done this um, fairy tale type. I think he plays Rumpelstiltskin Carlyle and some, I've never seen it, but some fairy tale yeah. drama thing on. Uh, one of the American channels um, and he got his big gig as a Bond villain but even that didn't really it didn't really do for him what some of this more sort of subtle stuff that the kid has done over the years has done for the kid's career No I think it's easy not to forget about Kevin McKidd but to overlook him mm. I think yeah would probably be the what I would say and, and he's delivered some brilliant performances I mean we reviewed obviously Small Faces on the, yeah. the Swally previously and he's fantastic yeah, yeah. Is Malky Johnson. <laughs> yeah. He's incredible as Tommy. 
yeah. in, in train spotting. And I always forget that he's in the Christmas episode of Father Ted. That's right. Yeah. As well. He plays one of the, the priests that gets lost in the lingerie section, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, for, I'd forgotten about that until I was I was getting my stuff together for this episode of the Swally. Um, um and of course, he's great in, in Dog Soldiers, and he is brilliant in this film. You know, mm. He does deliver a very good performance. As I say, that I'm a bit odd about the, the age in terms of the, the way he is, but I think he, he does deliver a, a very impassioned um, performance and, and delivery of, of some of his um, his lines and, and, and the way he, that he is. And it, he's very believable yeah. um, in that role. And, and you do feel for him, um, especially, you know, when Helen breaks up with him. And, and you can see, I, I think one of his best scenes is when they go to, in fact, it's probably the best kind of part of the film, is when they go to the beach mm-hmm. and he's in the tea room and he comes out and um, Ewan Bremner's character, Jake, I think is, is there. He's yeah. obviously trying to, to fire into Helen. There's no question about that. And I think that Frankie knows this mm-hmm. and that's why he's maybe a bit sharp with him. Then they go to his exhibition and when he's following that older couple round, that's you can see the anger kind of bubbling up yeah. within him and he's trying to hold it in. And I think he, he delivers that really well. Yeah. And then, of course, that leads to Helen breaking up with him and his, his slight demise. And as you say, in his recovery, when he's giving that impassioned speech at AA just after Elaine C. Smith has given her speech, mm. it's really heartbreaking and unbelievable and you and you kind of believe but then again he never he doesn't say i'm frankie i'm an alcoholic yeah he says i'm frankie i am a violent man yeah, yeah. which again leads to why isn't this 16 years of violence or 16 yeah. years of yeah anti-social behavior yeah i'm not sure i mean i felt i think that, that scene in the gallery is one of the best scenes in the film i think mm. I, I think actually the the best scenes in the film are the scenes with um with helen and frankie because they they're often yeah. quite funny you know what i mean they can mm. especially when he when she, when she starts kind of warming up to him um when he goes mm. to visit her in the record shop and things i felt quite sorry for him when she breaks up with him off the back of what happened in the art gallery because the couple in the art gallery are an absolute pair of cunts and you know initially it seems like he is trying to understand this art that he's looking at as part of his desire to be a better person and be closer to Helen because she's an art student and you know he he asks the guy why he thinks what he thinks about the about the piece that they're looking at and the guy is just a fucking complete prick to him and then his wife mm. becomes you know and you would like to think that you know you would you would hope that somebody would be like would, would want to well I think it's because of this and blah 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 and, and sort of strike up a yeah. conversation as opposed to just being a snob and dismissive <laughs> look we were having a perfectly lovely evening before you arrived. Now, I don't mean to be rude, but could you piss off? It's not very nice. I only wanted to know what the fuck you were talking about. You didn't have to be rude, did you? Yes, and you're right. I'm sorry. Now, could you please fuck off and leave us alone? So, when Frankie sort of turns on them and, and, and threatens them, and and scares the shit out of them. You kind of feel well. They sort of deserved it, you know. They 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 deserve to be brought down a peg or two based on their behaviour. And the fact that mm. she breaks up with them off the back of that incident when he's not done anything else, you know what I mean? Like there's been no other. He's, he's a wee bit. He's a, he's a bit sharp I, with 
with you and Bremner. Yeah, and I think you can tell by her facial expression that's kind of started yeah. the doubt in her mind because, and again, he's not being a dick. He's he's asking yeah. with you and Bremner. He's, I make collages. He's like, why? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, you know, Jake's like, well, no one's ever asked me that. He's like, well, it seems a pretty obvious question. Why yeah. do you do it? Yeah, yeah. And and as you say, it's it's not because he's been a dick. I don't think. I think he wants to understand because when he he approaches them and he's got the two T's. And funnily enough, Jake's been a bit of a dick when he's like, "It's one of them for me." Yeah. And I know he says it in a jokey way, but hey, it's the first time you've met. Yeah, yeah. This guy, and he he obviously is a bit of a head case. So you don't want to be saying stuff like that. You just say, "Oh, hi, man. How you doing?" Yeah. But then, and you can see in Frankie's face, he's like, what the fuck? And then he hands him the tea. Mm-hmm. And you think, okay, he's being a nice guy. He's being the bigger man. He's changing. Yeah. So I think it's a genuine question when he is asking him, why do you do this? Like, but people, why? Yeah. You, you feel like he's trying to, you know, it's it's maybe a world that he feels a bit intimidated by because it's, he, it's mm. separate to the one that he's grown up in so far. He's obviously, mm. he wants to, he's very keen on Helen. So, you know, he, he's trying to understand what takes her, you know, what sort of, you know, what floats her boat, what, what she's into, etc. But because he comes from the background he comes from, you know, he's he's a bit pointed when he asks. It's a bit of a, you know, I mean, I suppose you could say, well, you know, if you're meeting somebody for the first time, like if I met you for the first time and you said, oh, I work in marketing and I was like, why? You'd be thinking, fuck yeah. off. <laughs> but yeah. why? You know, but it's maybe, a, it's maybe a, a question that could be more delicately put later on, you know, so why is it that, you, that you've chosen to do collages? You know, what, you know, what is it about that type of expression that yeah. appeals to you, you know? Yeah, you're right. Maybe not just why. Yeah, yeah, um, but, but that's the, but that's who he is. It's where he comes from. And he's, 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 you know, he's trying, he's not, he's not sort of sensitive enough to be able to ask it in a nicer way, you know? He's, mm. and, and he also thinks this guy might be trying to fire into his girlfriend because mm. old uh, Joanne Rossi in the tea room from River City that his dad rattled behind the pub, he's, he's obviously, he's on edge after seeing her for the first time since, I'm assuming since the last time he saw her, his dad was hanging out of her, right? So, and, and she hasn't aged a day <laughs> yes, in I, that time. She's supposed to be <laughs> at least 10 years older than, than young Frankie and she looks about 10 years younger than Kevin McKinn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she hasn't aged a day from when his dad was rattling her because she just looks exactly the same. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, a, oh, is that her? You're like, oh, that's her. Um, you know, yeah. it's not even any slight makeup of wrinkles or anything on her. They just didn't bother. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier on the scene when we, when we see young Frankie having his first drink. He sort of, mm. he kind of slides down the wall, sort of train spotting style after that sip of whatever it was. Like he'd just taken a, a big dunt a smack. Can you remember the first time that you were drunk? Um, first time I was drunk. I don't know. Um, yeah, or what, or what age you were roughly? I mean, I'd I'd had a drink mm, before sure. then, but not been drunk. Yeah. Um, maybe the first time I was drunk would have been maybe about fifteen. Right. Or so, um, I don't know. You know something? Even as a youngster, I was always pretty good at handling my drink. Uh-huh. Like I used to go to parties, but then I started going to parties and I was maybe about 13, 14, that there was alcohol there. Because as I've said before, I used to hang out with kids that were older than me because like in school plays and yeah. stuff, it yeah. was, was the older kids. Um, so there was always booze at 
these parties and of course I'd maybe have like four or five beers but don't remember it affecting me that badly. I do remember coming home one night and I think I'd maybe had about five or six bottles of Budweiser or mm-hmm. something and I must have been about 15 and my mum saying have you been drinking? And I was like no <laughs> and then went just went straight up to bed and then the next day she said to me and I was like yeah I had been and expecting a lecture or something she's like where did you get it from? And it was like, oh, well, we're Uh hanging outside the off license and waiting, you know, getting people to go in and get. She was like, right, don't ever do that again. If you want alcohol, just ask me and I'll get it for you. But as long as I know what you're drinking, it's fine. And that was it. After that, like even at like 16, my mum would go and get us the booze for the weekend for me and my mates. (laughs) Yeah. Um, She was was fine because it's just as long as she knew where it was coming from. Yeah. Um, And I think maybe if she was buying us like tenants or like little stubbies yeah. or Sainsbury's like beer de la salse or something at least she knew we weren't going to be raiding vodka and whiskey from liquor cabinets and stuff like that yeah exactly she'd have known it she'd, if she bought like you know, like a 24 case between between her and her uh, you and your mates she would know yeah more or less exactly how much you would have to drink you know? yeah so it's like well I bought that there's six of them so they're only going to have four cans each or you yeah. know so it's going to be fine I mean you're um, right actually well, that's I, I was thinking there I'm trying to think I mean, like, you know, like, you and I have been friends for a long time and been out in the lash more times than, than we could probably add up. But I always remember with you, if I maybe came and met you guys a bit later and you'd been on it for a while, you were always pretty good at saying, ah, I'm going up the road. I've, you know what I mean? Like, I'll see you later. I'm going to go. Yeah. If, you know, if, you felt you'd had, if you felt you'd had too much to drink or you were, you know, you're pretty pissed or whatever, you would always just be like, and there'd be no like persuading you otherwise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think on the, on the odd occasion that... I think the only time that I've seen you like proper hammered was in my stag do in Barcelona when you got your uh, Brendan Flowers outfit on, um, your waistcoat oh, yeah. and stuff, and uh, you were all ready to go out and we're about to leave and then you were like... Right, we're outside the hotel when you were like, actually... I'm just going to go to bed. I'm fucking pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I should have done. I wish I'd. I wish I'd followed your example. So I fucking ruined my stag do about that night. But um, <laughs> yeah. So now, yeah, that's a that's a thank you. I mean, like the rest of us of our little kind of trio, like the the other two thirds of it, um, have definitely disgraced themselves <laughs> one time or another <laughs> just from not knowing our own limits. Um, but yeah, as I recall, you've always been pretty good. Yeah, I know when I've had enough and it's time to go yeah. before I um, make an arse of it. Or yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've sort of I'm, I can do that now for sure. But mm. I'm sort I'm all, I'm sort of embarrassed about how long it's taken me in my life to be able just to actually you know fuck it. I've had enough to drink. I'm just going to call it a night. Whereas like no like. Mm. Not that long ago, I'd be just kept going until, and then of course you, the next day is just wiped out because you've just kept going like far beyond your limits, and uh, you just end up being hungover or like fucking tomato soup day the next day, you know. <laughs> so as you've said, I think the the best scenes in the film are kind of the ones between Frankie and and Helen, yeah. played by the. The wonderful Laura Fraser. Fragrant Laura Fraser. Fraser. I've, um, yeah, I've had a bit of a thing for her since, I think, Small Faces. Yeah. Um, just there's just something, she's just such a, she's a great actress, but there's, there's a way, it's it's just like effortless for her. Like, you, she doesn't look like she's acting or, mm. and okay, I know she's playing probably a kind of character that she was at the time, you know, like a, a young. Yeah, it's a streetwise. You know, early 20s, mature, streetwise. Yeah. yeah, girl, but. 
it just seems effortless. And I mean, she's had a, a pretty varied career as well. I mean, and most recently being in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, you know, yeah. incredible performances there. And she's done really well um, in terms of but still doing a lot of Scottish stuff, but still branching out. And yeah, uh, yeah I think she's, she's great in this. She's really good. So I was surprised that she wasn't in the film more. It's just sort of, it's maybe half an hour altogether that, you know, her total screen time in the film really susan lynch who plays um mary the irish actress who plays mary like she's she's a love interest really in the film um yeah you know and her introduction her introductory scene is a bit sort of innocuous you know it's mm. the it, it's i mean it, I, I can't describe i can't decide if it's a sort of innocuous scene or if it's actually quite clever because frankie meets her in the bar they appear to be the only people sitting at the bar she's having a drink she looks pretty miserable frankie starts uh, chatting to her and then he says will you join me and then the next thing we see her at a meeting with frankie and that's the beginning of the relationship mm. where you know so it's yeah. sort of is he saying will you join me for a drink or he's recognizing a sort of another troubled soul another ki- a sort of kindred spirit who is maybe at the same point that he's at and he's asking her mm. will you join me uh in recovery you know yeah that's a very interesting point i think that could be and but do you think similarly because they do the same thing with Mary that they do with Helen when the the relationship effectively starts there's a little musical interlude and then mm-hmm. it's just kind of still images of them laughing or enjoying themselves or you know and and that's the way they show that the relationship is blossoming yeah. in effect and of course Helen takes him to Carlton Hill to the, the monument and he takes Mary there later is he just trying to replicate his relationship with Helen with Mary well he said that when you this when he goes there with um, Helen does he not ask her why she likes to go there and she said mm. I, because I can feel like I'm the only person in the world here because they're up high yeah. and they can look down the city and I thought I sort of thought that you know that the, the, the place had become important to him more for those kind of reasons rather than because of the association with Helen and that he was mm. you know i mean i guess it, i guess it, it's, it's open to interpretation but that he was you know he was just trying to maybe in, in a sort of subconscious way f- that get susan to understand a bit more about him by taking her to a place that is important to him you know like but i think there's the uh, helen describes it like the kind of greek gods on mount olympus you know looking yeah. down on on creation <laughs> i love it here why Sometimes I just feel so small down there, like I'm not really part of it. Like, people could just walk on top of me. And up here? Up here, I feel like I'm up with the gods, like nobody could touch me. Safe. Safe. I like that. So yeah, but I mean, I think I mean I, there's so many parts of this film that are, and I think that's one of the things that I liked about it. And, you know, and I was able to appreciate on the second viewing is that you know it's quite bold, I think, of a director to leave parts of you know certain parts and uh, of the film up to interpretation. And I think we've seen before in certain cases it has sort of blown up in a director's face. But even like the the end of the film, you know, does Frankie survive that beating that he gets from? And Miller and the two other guys in the alley. Does he not? You know, it's all. It, it's just. It really just is leaving it to the to the viewer to make their mind up. And I think that's where you know that's where his sort of poetry comes in because poetry is very much in the. It's very you know it's there to be interpreted in any way you want to. You know, like the best poetry. Yeah. Is, anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think yeah, the ending is obviously very open to 
interpretation and mm-hmm. I, I like that i always like that in films when it kind of is you know leaves it up to you i know my yeah. wife hates that for example <laughs> yes. in terms of the, so does mine um <laughs> you know she just wants a final answer whereas yeah. i'd like it when it's kind of left open i mean yeah i mean i've of, of the viewpoint that yes he does indeed die because i think miller is very much out for blood yeah. and yeah. i think he's yeah gonna kill it yeah I think I think you're probably right. Um, and like you said at the beginning of the podcast, it's you know this the sort of retrospective is his life passing before his eyes, right? Yeah, that's the way I viewed it when I when I thought about it. That because it does when you see the the ending at the beginning, mm-hmm. and it focuses on his eyes, and then all of a sudden he's a kid in his hips top, and then yeah, back at the ending, it's the the close up of his face again, just as the credits roll. So yeah, mm-hmm. I kind of view that as his yeah, it's a dying man yeah. with his life flashing before his eyes. Yeah. Which you know, which is a bit depressing, because <laughs> you can, you know, I mean, he's not always the, he's not always, you're not always rooting for him through the course of the film, to be honest. But you know, I think certainly for most of the third act, you, you kind of want him to work it out, and you know, he's, you know, they up until maybe the last sort of ten, fifteen minutes, he seems to have sort of found his place. You know, he's doing drama. He's found a nice. He's found a nice partner in Helen. Everything seems to be going okay until he has the. You know, he has that reminder. He think in the pub when he thinks the director mm-hmm. and Helen are, have gone out together in the in the alley. And it turns out that it was another. It's another member of the cast, and you're like, ah, yeah, dude. If only he had just gone round and had a look. You know. Yeah, that's the. It's heartbreaking that he's yeah. kind of. Yeah, got the wrong end of the stick. But as I say, again, it's more flashbacks. At, you know, 16 years of philandering rather yeah. than 16 years of alcohol. 16 years of making a cunt of it. Maybe that'd be a better title. <laughs> and he is a, a strange, she's a character, because, of course, when we see him as the adult and that, that first pub scene when he him and his droogs are stealing the bottles behind the bar and you think he's being okay when he's yeah. saying to the, the landlord, look, just take the money, we don't want any trouble. And then, of course... Mm-hmm. sticks a head on him yeah, and, yeah. Um, so you, you kind of like okay so he is a bit of a violent thug but then mm. when Miller's got the two guys in the nightclub toilet with the knife in their mouth mm-hmm. he comes across a you know kind of the voice of reason yeah. when he's like get up just it's quite confusing it, is that to show how he is at the start and then is Wait. it because he's met yeah, Laura Fraser and then so. seen her in the club that he's trying to change his ways that's a good point yeah actually that could be yeah, the reason, because he does, yeah, Miller is a complete dick in the, the record store to her. Yeah. And yeah, he ends up, yeah, he does, um, when she asks him why he hangs about with him, she does kind of, yeah, maybe that does lead him to begin questioning yeah. his choices. Well, she, what she says to him, she says, well, you, you, when he, he apologizes for their behavior, and she says, well, you chose them, you know? Yeah, that's and, true. And he's that, you tell that sort of makes him think, you know, well, did I? Did I choose them? You know? Sorry. For being with them. You chose them. Thought of you as kind my of. mountain top. Thought of you as my peak. Maybe see you around then. So speaking of the Clockwork Orange uh, sort of similarities, have you have you watched a Clockwork Orange of late? Uh, not for a while. Um, I keep meaning to watch it again because I I did enjoy it. I mean, I prefer the book, but yeah. I, I have enjoyed the film and I've seen it a few times. But it, it's been a while. It's a bit of a tough watch now. I think, and not be, mm. not for not because of the you know the sort of the more violent scenes. Just 
I think just in in general, you know, it's it's a bit of a it's it's hard going. I would say, you know, I think that's mm-hmm. probably the the easiest way to describe it. You can see its influence all over this. I mean, I suppose like there's there's scenes of there's mm. scenes in a Clockwork Orange that are a bit like a music video. You know, they mm, even yeah. you know they the scene where they beat up the what's his name uh, Warren. Uh, it's an ID. Plays a bartender in ID. What he's passed away. Uh, yeah, I know uh, Warren yeah. Clark. I think. Warren Clark. Yeah. yeah, the scene when Alex assaults him when they're walking beside the water and mm. knocks him into the water and it's all set to music because you know it's all set to yeah. it's a bit like it's a bit like it's a bit like a, like a music video and you can you can you can feel it's uh it's influencing this film both mm. like obviously and and quite subtly but that but this the scene in the underpass when you see them silhouetted mm-hmm. uh sort of dancing around and running up the the sort of inclines of the underpasses mm-hmm. I mean, that's straight out of there and i suspect jobson's probably paying homage as opposed to a straight rip-off you know, I would hope. Uh, I would think so. And that's the way it was marketed in mm. the US. And I think it's even on the, the IMDb main image. Um, this film is described as train spotting meets a clockwork orange. And I wouldn't describe it like that. Did you see who but... they who they, who they give the credit for that review to? Oh, it's the Daily Star. <laughs> <laughs> that's That says it all then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've read quite a lot of comparisons because I've read a few of the reviews on IMDb and and amazon and stuff and a lot of people have said oh this is like train spotting it's not it's no. I, I could not the, the only thing this has got in common with train spotting is kevin mckids in it yeah and there's there's not really any comparison in in my opinion in terms of a struggle or and it's got a decent soundtrack i suppose you know there's some good music in this yeah it does yeah as you'd expect from from richard jobson which which your favorite skid song i don't know actually I was never really a huge fan of the skids. I mean, it would just be the fucking obvious choice I'd probably go for. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, they, this. I mean, I've been listening to them this week because of because of the movie with Richard Jobson and things. Mm. I mean, they. We, I watched like a live performance of the Saints Are Coming, which is probably the song that they are best remembered for. And you can you you can hear their influence on early. You too, for sure. Mm. You know, especially with that song, and they, and even, and they, uh, U2 even did a cover of that song for charity around uh, the mid two thousands, I think. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think they they warrant a bit of a revisit. The Skids, I would say. Mm. Um, they, yeah, they were a good band. Yeah, I'll have to go and um, give them a re-listen. Actually. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else on? 16 years of alcohol um i think the only other thing i'd like to maybe touch upon because we haven't really spoken about him but we can give him a quick one is lewis mcleod oh yeah yeah of course frankie's father yeah and he's had quite a a hugely varied career i think probably best known really as a voiceover artist i would say and of course he's in um very famously uh saboba in the phantom menace Mm -hmm. and i think he's uh as i say very well known for being a a voiceover it's not not the voice of posting pat as well now he did, yes. I yeah. think in the most recent Postman Pat series. I don't know if I think that's ended now, but yeah, he uh, he did that, and he he's been in quite a few things over the years, especially um, in in Scotland. Yeah, he's had quite a few appearances in things like Only an Excuse, and I think he he's been in Still Game. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, he must have been, and probably Rab Nesbitt as well. But yeah, he plays the role really well as um, 
as the philandering father. Yeah, he's good. Like, it's this, especially the scenes where he's holding court in the pub. Mm. You know, he's, uh, yeah, you can see why people are, why the women are attracted to him, you know, just yeah. in terms, and it's not even that he's, like, so, sort of like, kind of movie star good looks. It's more his, I guess, swagger, for want of a better, want a better description, you know, his charm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, his IMDb is uh, is quite amazing, really. Right, this, he's a lot of stuff. Mm. I mean, he's he's like this. The, the whole Sabalba thing's been paying the bills for him for over twenty years because he's done it for the video <laughs> games and um, he's done it for some of the animated stuff that they've put the Star Wars animated stuff that that's come out over the last sort of ten, fifteen years. I mean, yeah, I'm surprised that he's we've not seen him do more kind of normal acting, really, because he's, yeah. he's 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 great in this. I thought. You know, even when you see him mm. later on, when he's sort of descended into vagrancy, when the grown-up Frankie meets, uh, sees him getting beaten up outside his work. And i got to say, I don't know if they just, like, found a couple of kids on the street and said, do you want to earn 20 quid and pretend to beat this guy up? But, I mean, <laughs> shocking performances from those extras. <laughs> like, shocking. But he's, um, he's, he's great. He's a very, very good actor. And I, I'd never really come across him until we did, until uh, doing the reading for this. Mm. Here I have. He's very good. And I've got to say as well, the guy who plays Miller, um, I wrote his name down. Is it? It's uh, Stuart Sinclair. Yeah, Stuart Sinclair Blythe. Blythe yeah, he's he's pretty good. I thought. You know, like mm. you know, he's good at playing that sort of a little bit unhinged. You know, like the the, the, the sort of simmering cycle. That you see earlier on before he goes full, full sort of whammy um, towards the end. They see the the, the the two guys that that help beat him up, uh, help beat up mm. Frankie. It, is that supposed to be the same two guys that were in the yes. gang? It is. So they've just started following Miller instead of following. Frankie yeah. Aaron, basically. Basically, yeah. That's um that was yeah, the way I took it, definitely. Right, okay. That they've just followed. Because they when they have the, the fight, when they're in the square practicing mm. their kung fu moves yeah. on each other and then yeah, that that's when Miller pulls the knife. Yeah. The other two side with Miller. Mm-hmm. Um because they, they boot Frankie in the balls and yeah. then obviously Miller stabs him. Mm-hmm. So that's the the end of that. Yeah. Um I, I wasn't sure about their tactic as well of when they're going to the club. And they say, right, we all go in one by one. But they all go in like two minutes after each other. Yeah. And <laughs> I think the then they all meet forget. up. <laughs> yeah. They're all dressed exactly the same. And they're the only four on the dance floor. Like, you think the bouncer's going to spot that. It's not the best tactic to uh, yeah. to get into a club. But I guess they to, had uh, to show it that way. Four remarkably similarly dressed guys. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know. It's not at all obvious. Not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that's um, yeah, that's it in terms of my coverage of sixteen years of alcohol. Anything else from your side? No, I don't think so. No, I think I've gone. I've made all my points. Um, oh, there was one thing I'd forgotten that calling somebody a raid was could also be used in a derogatory way because. <laughs> You know, like, I guess the sort of classic use of that word in Scotland is when somebody is describing somebody that they fancy. Oh, that, that guy yeah. or that girl's a pure raid. Um, mm. But I'd forgotten that it could be used to as a derogatory term as well. But uh, Helen's uh, colleague in the record shop, one of the skinhead guys, <laughs> calls him a fucking raid as he's going to take his lunch and he's walking out. You're a fucking raid. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I remember thinking that at the time, thinking, did he just say what I think he said? <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I would obviously use it as the, yeah, mm-hmm. the other uh, terminology of ride. Yeah. Thinking that way. Yeah. Okay, then. So let's put 16 years of alcohol through our coveted Culture Swally Awards. So the first one... Mm is the Bobby the Barman Award for the best pub. So for this, I've written any of them. Any of the pubs, yeah. <laughs> I'd be quite happy. There's only a couple, really, in it. Yeah. Well, there's the nightclub, then there's the pub, obviously. The, at the start. His dad, and, yeah. and then at the end, yeah. There's the pub that they're, he's playing pool with, um, with Laura Fraser in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was... Oh, no, there's the pub where they're stealing the, the booze behind the bar. But yeah, yeah, I agree. Any of them, I'd be quite happy to, to go for a pint in. Also a classic uh, 20th century boozers. Yeah. Um, okay, next award then, the Ewan McGregor Award for Gratuitous Nudity. So I've got two for this. What have you got? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, there's the, the kind of little sex scene but you don't really see anything but you do no. see Frankie and Mary kind of naked but just their um, standing bodies up, standing you know, up actually, in the living room yeah weird isn't it you don't see anything <laughs> um, but yeah I went with that what about yourself yeah well I went with that was one of mine it's not really gratuitous and the the other one that um, I chose isn't really gratuitous either but it's um, it's Frankie doing Bruce Lee in the mirror in the, in the mirror with his shirt off basically oh, yeah. just for you he opens the door to a bottling um, we never find out who we, n- we never find out who the who his assailant was, but I guess we're supposed to assume it was maybe the bartender that he'd beaten up in the previous scene. That's who I assumed it was. Yeah. Okay, so this next one was a bit of a trickier one to pin down this week, but uh, the James Cosmo Award for being in everything Scottish. So I I've um, kind of got three potentials here. Okay. But I don't okay. know if it's I don't know though because it's not really I don't think they're really quite as prolific. Is Cosmo? Yeah. <laughs> well, very few people are, Greg, I would say. Very few people are. Um, well, what three did you go for then? So um, I went with Ian. So I based this on their IMDb, by the way. So I'm not, mm. you know, it's just because I'm not that familiar. I wasn't that familiar with any of these actors before I watched the film. But um, hopefully I'm saying mm. his name right. So Ian de Kasktker, who plays the young Frankie. Oh, yeah. He's been in mm-hmm. quite a few things since. Lewis McLeod, we spoke about. He's done a tiger mm-hmm. before, as has Ian uh, de Kasker. And then Stuart Sinclair Blythe, because he's been in quite a lot of Scottish stuff. Uh, still game, mm-hmm. tiger, etc. Do you, have okay. anybody, do you have anybody on top of that? I, I guess I'm just obsessed, but I went with Laura Fraser. Because um, <laughs> she's, she's been in quite a lot. I mean, she's in Small Faces, she's yeah. in Taggart. Yeah. Um, she's in, obviously, this. She's in, I think, another couple of Scottish films, like The Match, that I keep meaning I'm threatening to do on the yeah. the podcast at some point. She's in The Loch. Um, she is most recently, I think, in Traces. And she's in Crime as well. Right. The, the Irvin Welsh spin-off. Yeah, so okay. and I think she's in Beats as well. So she's in quite a lot. Um but yeah, I think I'm just maybe slightly obsessed with Laura Fraser, so I've um just picked her. I couldn't see past her. Do you know who I used to often mix her up with? I don't know why. But you know um Claire Florani, who's in Mulrats, the English actress. Oh uh, yeah, they do look a bit similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah I used um, to mix them up a little bit before. She's married to D. Gray Scott. Right. Maybe that's why. Claire Forlani. The last thing I saw her in was that fucking terrible Elijah Wood football hooligan film Green, uh, Green Street. Green yeah. Street. Yeah. yeah, which uh, I wonder if uh, the cast of that film would rather forget it. Um, um, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, there's also a case for, 
I keep calling her um, Joanne Rossi because <laughs> yeah. that's a character's <laughs> name in uh, in River um, City. Her name is actually Alison McKenzie. Yeah, she's uh, she's being quite a lot of stuff in Scotland. Yeah, as well. actually, you're right because she's in crime. She's in Shetland. Mm-hmm. Um, she's in The Victim. Yeah, like yeah. She did Line of Duty, which although it isn't Scottish, but it feels like it's no. a little bit Scottish because of Martin Compton and some of the other actors that have been in it over the years. But it's strictly speaking, <laughs> it's definitely not. So, so Line of Duty, which is based in England but filmed in Ireland, and <laughs> has Martin Compton doing an English accent, yeah. you're claiming is Scottish. No, but there's more. There, there's more Scottish connections than that. I just can't think of what they are right now. Um, Kelly McDonald. Kelly McDonald. There's one. Right, <laughs> it's just you know. I know it's. I know it's definitely not Scottish, but I think you know. There's. Okay. I think we can take a little bit of credit for it. Okay. Okay. Next award then, the Jake McQuillan Yartizu Award. So that a few things to pick from in this one as well. Yeah, there's quite a few because there are quite a few um, instances of violence and quite a few would clarify, clarify, classify as Tizu. Yeah. I purely went with Frankie getting the bottle in the face as he opens the door because it's about a payback and uh-huh. it's quite unexpected as well because it does say everything right. It's about to happen. Yeah. It does, yeah. So I went with that, but there's so many that you could choose from for this. What what about yourself? I went with what I've described it as the the possum face bite. Um so when he pretends mm. to be unconscious and waits until Miller puts his face really close to his and then kind of bites him in the cheek before spitting out a bit of pint of blood when he stands up. Yeah. To be fair, Miller, they did a good job when they stitched him up because he's just got a very small scar <laughs> on his face when you see him later. You'd expect him like a big chunk yeah. to be out of his face, big but it's a, dog bite. a very small scar. Yeah. yeah, so they did a good job on him. Yep. Um, okay, uh, next then, the Francis Begbie Award for Gratuitous Swearing. Again, no shortage of choices here. Yeah, a lot <laughs> to choose from. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely a lot and some some very good ones. What did you go for? I went with this, not because it's particularly gratuitous, just because it, it was my favourite and it made me laugh, was uh, in the record shop, Mott the fucking Hoople. <laughs> I went for just the whole kind of record shop part because there's quite a lot of swearing in there. So yeah, yeah Mott the fucking Hoople and, and when he... Um, says the big ponce bastards and yeah, yeah just that whole little exchange bit i yeah that was what i gave it to i thought yeah. it was great what the fuck is that bracket rubbish. fucking crap Time for a change my man stop this fucking racket this rubbish this fucking crap indeed he do indeed what shall it be then budget desmond decker please dad oh please dad no alex harvey oh pretty please mummy miller what the hoople what the fucking hoople you are joking me oh. Miller, you've let the side down. Stand in the corner and face the wall. Go on, Miller. Stand in the corner and face the wall for being a fucking idiot who likes fucking idiot music made by big poncy bastards. Archetypal Scottish moment. It's that when he comes running down the street in the CU Jimmy hat, of course, <laughs> when he says he's, he's Mary. That's the, what I went for. <laughs> <laughs> the ginger wearing a ginger hat. Um, yeah. yeah, that was the the best I could kind of come up with, really. What That's about a, yourself? I I had a, a acapella pub singing for mine. That feel that feels like <laughs> okay. something that's distinctly Scottish. You know, that was a that's song. Very true, actually. You know? He's a yeah. song. Everybody's quiet. Stands up in the pub and sings. Um, that's very true. Yeah, you don't see that in um, a lot of other things. So yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, because even in Goodnight Sweetheart, Gary's got a piano. So yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> stuff to be said for just singing a cappella. Yeah, I mean, that that feels like a sort of English, the sort of English equivalent is somebody getting on the piano in a pub and somebody singing along. Yeah. You know, the scenes from Coronation Street with Hilda giving it loudly while somebody plays the piano and there's, there's East yeah. Ender scenes. I think it's Pat who plays the piano and the, the pub, the have a good old Cockney sing song, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but just doing Two it... pianos in Scotland. <laughs> doing it dry. <laughs> it feels like distinctly Scottish. Okay, uh, and then lastly, the Sean Connery Award for who won the film, do you think? I, I gave it to Richard Jobson Did for you? this because I think it's his directorial debut. He he wrote the, the film. I mean, it, it's loosely based. I think it's like an amalgam of him and his brother. Right. The, the character of Frankie is his brother unfortunately died like a few years ago in India um, okay. and it, I, I thought that it was very brave some of the choices that he made in this film like we say, we've said it's not the best film it, mm-hmm. it has its moments it's good some of the choices maybe didn't work but I think to make your debut and to be so brave to do that and I think just you know, good on him for getting this film made. Mm-hmm. And I think it was only like a £450,000 budget right. for this entire film. And it looks great in some places. You know, yeah. it, it shot in HD, I think. And it's he made some, yeah, brave choices and, and it works in a lot of places. So other than that, I would have given it to Kevin McKidd because he does deliver a great performance. But I've given it to Richard Jobson. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, fa- I think that's fair. I'd given it to Kevin McKidd. Um, because you know he's he seems he seems to completely get it even when the, even the moments when it's not exactly obvious what they're trying to achieve in the film. Mm. But I think it's fair. I think I think it's fair giving it to Jobson because they it feels like he's sort of told the story in the way that he wanted to tell it. You know, when you like I said earlier, mm. when you when you learn a bit more about Jobson, he's clearly a very intellectual guy. You know what I mean? Mm. And I'm, I'm I'm quite keen to see his next film, The Newtown Killers, with uh, Dougie Scott. And I watched the trailer for it, and it looks pretty good. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe maybe I have to stick that on the slate um, for a later episode. But yeah, I think it's fair. I think you're right. I think he it's it's brave because I suppose he, he could have told it in a quite a linear sort of way. Um, but I guess that sort of story has been told loads of times before, you know? Yeah. So they, I think he's, I think you're right. I think he's been brave. I think he's probably, or hopefully he's been able to, to sort of tell the story in the way that feels true to him, you know? And mm. like, in, you know, if, in leaving big parts of it up to the interpretation of the audience. And, you know, and you, yeah. I think you find that like, certainly with modern films, that you don't really see that. Like, the audience, it feels like the director feels like they have to sort of walk the audience through it and there's a lot of exposition mm. and, you know, it's which is fine, I guess, for certain types of film. But sometimes you want something a bit more challenging, you know, and I, th- I think that's... Yeah. I th- if, you know, if anybody who's not seen this film, you know, if you like a, a challenging film, you should definitely check it out. No, definitely. It's, um, yeah, it's not all soft, fluffy furnishings. I don't know where I'm going with that. But <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's quite a hard-hitting film and it, it's yeah. doesn't, it doesn't spoon-feed the audience. Either. Yeah, exactly. I think it does, it does leave you to make up your own mind in yeah. some of the places. But yeah, no, I, I would trust it to be intelligent enough to, you know. And it is available on YouTube if anyone wants to watch it. The full film is there. So, okay. Okay. Well, uh, that was my choice, Greg. So, 
why don't you tell us what we're going to be looking at on the next episode of The Swally? Okay, well, I'll apologise in advance because it's not something that can be watched just like in the space of a couple of hours. Um, but our, one of our favourite authors has got a new book out this week, Irvin Welsh. His new book just came out a few days ago called The Long Knives. So we've had something on our agenda that's only came out last year that we've been talking about watching that we haven't. So I think it's a good time to see the aforementioned Dougray Scott in the Britbox exclusive crime based on Irvin Welsh's early 2000s novel, a sort of follow-up to filth in the sense that it's got DCI Ray Lennox in it. So sorry, <laughs> it's going to take a bit of time. Well, it's, it's, hey, you've picked a perfect week because my wife's away next weekend. So oh, <laughs> I can sit and binge crime because I have said to her, do you want to watch this? Yeah. Um, when, when it first came out and she's not interested. So, okay, fair enough. Uh, which I was quite surprised at. So I will sit and devour it myself then yeah over the course of next weekend fantastic yeah no i'm, I'm really looking forward to that because i've yeah, been wanting too. to watch it and i just it's it's one of those things i've never i've put off or mm-hmm. just never find a time so uh yeah i'll look forward to that great cool. okay All right. uh well thank you very much for listening everyone hope you enjoyed the show if you'd like to follow us on instagram please give us a follow at culture swally pod you can also follow us on twitter at swally pod and if you've seen anything that you'd like us to review or cover or if you've seen any news stories or hey if you just want to drop us a line and get in touch please feel free and you can do that on culture swally at gmail.com and As usual, please feel free to give us a rating, review, subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the podcast to grow. And tell your friends about us as well. And uh, Greg, uh, we have a lovely new website, don't we? We do. Uh, You can find us at cultureswally.com. I'm sure you'll be not surprised to know that we didn't have to fight anybody for that domain name. Um, But there's links to our, our socials on there. There's some features about the Crankies and other bits of Scottish popular culture so come and check us out and uh, thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us uh, in the socials over the last few weeks Um, we've had some nice comments on Instagram and on Twitter and things and it's all very affirming makes it all worthwhile so thank you very much fantastic right well are you off to go and listen to some Brian Ferry or Mott the Hoople (laughs) or are you going to Go with the skids. I think I'm gonna. It's been a skids and a Bell and Sebastian kind of week um, this week because Bell and Sebastian have got a new album out, uh, which is definitely worth checking out. Um, so yeah, I think I'll I'll give Brian Ferry a miss. Okay. Well, I'm still in my Darius trend at the moment. So oh I'm yeah, we to listen to talk Darius. About, I didn't talk about poor Darius. R.I.P. I know I should have. Yeah, I did think about doing something at the start, but um, it's still too emotional and raw at the moment. I, I don't know. I, I didn't told the story of when I met him. I don't think on the podcast. Oh, and sure, I think you did. Lovely, it will work. Yeah, maybe yeah. I have told the story then. But yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I no, I think I, th- I think it's important to say that we're not like genuinely not taking the piss out of Darius. That we always no, no, I'm not. As we as we mentioned on, we put a little post on Instagram when we found out he passed away. And we always had a bit of a soft spot for him. I think because he didn't go down the kind of Will Young, Gareth Gates typical sort of X Factor pop idol singer route. He did as much as he possibly could do it in his own terms mm-hmm. by all accounts 
Uh, no, that I never met him, but by all accounts, even before he died, he was highly regarded and uh, people mm. said he was a very, very nice guy. So it's a real shame. Um, and we send our condolences to Darius, his family and friends. Yeah. No, I did. I had the pleasure of meeting him once in, in Woolworths. Mm. I went and got a, a CD signed and I chatted to him for a couple of minutes and yeah. told him that I thought he was a legend. And <laughs> he he genuinely seemed so thankful and yeah. appreciative of that and just this warm glow and i got a cd signed for my girlfriend at the time and as it, when i went to leave the shop i looked at the cd he'd signed for her and it said to her name um lucky girl darius oh, oh. and obviously nice reference to me so yeah it was a lovely chap so genuinely i was very upset to hear the news yeah. about darius so yeah i'm off to go and listen to colorblind again okay uh right well thanks very much then greg Thank and too. thanks everyone for listening till next time till next time in the real world you old cunt I would cut your arse with a knife so close that the fat arse tissue couldn't be sewn back together again. And then I would hang you from a wall and say to passers-by, look, my best work. Do you know what they would say? They would say, absolutely divine, darling, heavenly. They would say, that Frankie Mac is definitely going somewhere.